Hello, everybody. Warren Smith here, and I'd like to welcome you once again to this extra edition of the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, I'm real pleased to have as my guest Dr. Russell Moore. He has a new book out called Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. And, uh, you know, Russell Moore uh, has been a polarizing figure in some ways in the world of evangelicalism, but uh, I'm not embarrassed to tell you that I have been a fan of Dr. Russell Moore's for uh, many years, had the opportunity to be with him uh, sort of up close and personal many times over the last 10 to 15 years, and have uh, found him to be not only just a delightful person personally, but also a man of real integrity. We don't agree on everything, not 100%, but I find find that when I'm with Dr. Russell Moore, uh, I get smarter, and uh, I think it's, uh, you know, worthwhile to share this particular uh, interview with you, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before we do, i did want to mention that it's uh, the week before Christmas as I'm recording this, so let me say Merry Christmas, first of all, and also to let you know that uh, uh, Ministry Watch and lots of other Christian ministries need to raise a significant percentage of their annual budget in the final month of the year. In Ministry Watch's case, we're trying to raise about $117,000 in the months of November and December combined. And that's about a quarter of our budget. Um, right now, we're at about $75,000. So we've raised you know, 65% of that money. And I'm really grateful for that. We've got about 10 days left. And uh, it's been our experience over the last few years that we do get uh, a significant amount of money that comes in in the last week and even the last few days. So if you have given uh, to Ministry Watch this year, and especially in the last few weeks, let me just say thank you very much. Uh, you are a blessing to us, and you allow us to keep doing the work that we do. If you haven't, uh, I hope that you would prayerfully consider a gift to Ministry Watch before year end. And, you know, if you don't give to Ministry Watch, I hope that you will at least give generously to your church and to Christian ministries in the last uh, 10 days of the year. This is a critical time for a lot of organizations. It's the way many organizations get through January, February, and March. I mean, because those are often thin fundraising months of the year. So with that, let me uh, just again say thanks, and let's go ahead and pivot to my conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. Again, his book is Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Russell Moore, welcome to the program. I really found your book, Nourishing, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America, as I have found all of your books in the last uh, few years. So thank you. Thank you for the books, and thanks for being on. Well, thank you. Well, I'm a uh, faithful reader of Ministry Watch. Uh, <laughs> uh, always am amazed by how much news you can break and analysis you can do uh, every week. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, I, you know, as I've read as I read your book, um, you, you, let, let's just stipulate for the record that we can't cover everything that's in the book in the short amount of time that we've got. So, I tried to organize my thinking uh, around a couple of key ideas. One was symptoms, because clearly we are seeing some some symptoms of pathology in our culture, in the evangelical culture in particular. But those symptoms are often not 
they may be what's presenting themselves to us, but they're not the root causes. So I wanted to also look at some root causes and then also, you know, pivot to some solutions at some point as well. And, and also reserve a right of personal privilege. <laughs> it is my program after all to uh, ask a, a few questions that I just am interested in. If we've got time, I know you've got a time limit and I, I also don't want to impose on our listeners too much. So we won't go on forever, but let me just get started um, with uh, something that you wrote really early in the book um, about altar calls and uh, revivalism. You said that uh, when I was older, I found much to criticize about this weekly revivalism. And one of the criticisms was that it was transactional and uh, that it uh, that it created within uh, many people raised in that environment uh, this expectation of transaction. Can you say a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, it's it's uh, a sense of there for for a lot of people there was a sense of walking the aisle as being almost a sacrament, uh, and it, it became a I'll exchange my response for forgiveness um, in a way that I I found really dangerous early on. But the the older I've gotten, the more I see that there was there was a lot about revivalism and a lot about specifically the altar call that is not easily replaceable. Yeah, well, I, I've often said uh, I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, walked the aisle when I was fourteen years old, baptized by Doctor Nelson Price, who I'm guessing you probably met at some yeah. point. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I come out of that tradition myself, and it was a meaningful experience for me. I mean, it is, it is when, uh, you know, I believe I was born again was uh, actually not that moment, but a, a, a day or two earlier. And my walking the aisle was a profession of that faith. And uh, so I often say that um, that a, a change in direction is what I think we're, you know, we we need to see for you know, if there's long-term fruit, uh, but that uh, that a change in direction does begin with a decision, right? I mean, a decision is important. Uh, it really does matter. And yet I, I really uh, heard loud and clear your concerns about uh, the transactional nature of much of what happens in churches. Yeah. You know, I think about, um, uh, for instance, I would be in, I was a youth pastor and uh, I would be in youth revivals where the evangelist would say, you know, Maybe you're kind of just feeling out of sorts and uh, you just don't know where you fit. Maybe you have your baptism out of order. So walk the aisle and I'm saying, you know, you feel out of sorts because they're teenagers. (laughs) But that kind of abuse uh, doesn't mean that there's not something really, really good at focusing the mind, not just of the unbelievers, but of everybody else, that this is what we're here for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, something else that you talk about early in the book is um, this notion of institutions to protect themselves, uh, to build um, infrastructure, to build bureaucracy around protecting themselves. And I'm going to read a, a short passage from the book and ask you to say more. At a conference I hosted, a national advocate for sexual abuse survivors mentioned publicly With the woman's permission, the horrific mistreatment that a sexual abuse survivor had endured at the hands of a Southern Baptist entity. That entity's president called the meeting to ask me how I could let this happen and to remind me that I had a responsibility to protect 
the base. Now that that conference, I was actually at that conference in Dallas. It was the uh, Caring Well conference, and uh, a couple of very powerful moments. Uh, you you don't name a lot of names in this book. You will often say the president of that entity rather than just saying who it was, um, which I respect on one level. The journalist in me also wishes that you had named more names. Well, well, the main the main reason for that is because I'm talking to a lot of people who don't know who these figures are and so it would be it would get kind of confusing and inside baseballers yeah no i get that 100 percent um so but let's go back to the point here is that you were you 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 wrote that to make the point that there is a strong uh impulse to preserve the institution even at the say even if it means throwing the victims of the institution under the bus Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that that's an easy trap to move into um, completely unintentionally if one doesn't really uh, work against it because there's a sense of, well, the institution is here and the institution is important, and I can think of all the good things the institution can do. Therefore, uh, we need to protect the institution. And you can see that. I mean, that happens all the time, even at the local church level, uh, where you will have people who are saying, we've got some really bad things going on, but there's too much at stake to deal with them right now. And that's what enables really bad things to happen. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to some solutions, I hope, um, before we're through talking, because, I mean, in my work here at Ministry Watch, um, that's a... um, you know, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, the, you know, I, I encounter this over and over and over again uh, that uh, that uh, institutions move into self-preservation mode whenever there is a um, whenever there is a problem. And um, so, so I, I don't know that there's a short term solution for that problem, but I would like to maybe circle back to that again. I'm in the in, in the stage of the conversation where we're identifying symptoms and causes right now. Um, another another symptom, um, I, and I think it's more of a symptom than a cause. And I would welcome your in um, your insights into this is Trumpism or political fusion. Um, the uh, I, I thought I, there's just no way that we can get through this conversation without uttering the T word Trump. So, um, but I do think that the way you described it as political fusion is um, it it, it kind of takes it out of the personality driven conversation because I and and I think that that really is more the problem that it is that Trump is is a symptom not the cause um, I mean there's there's certainly some follow-on effects that he has caused but in my view um, this this uh, impulse towards um, populism uh, this impulse towards transactionalism and revivalism uh, that uh, it, that is part of the DNA and the legacy of the evangelical church makes us vulnerable to someone who uh, takes you know some of the same superficial trappings and moves that over into a political populism. Um, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that's right. Although I would say both symptom and cause, because there's almost a a cyclical kind of effect uh, here. So when you look at uh, churches divided, families divided, uh, friendships divided, and and so forth, 
yeah, there's there's a deeper root and a cause of it, but this is this has been the accelerant, um, yeah. you know, for for quite a bit. And I think that it's, I think that actually the the symptom. I know I'm not supposed to talk about causes now. No, go feel free. But I think the I think the cause of that is a loss of a sense of life um, that is present and. And there's a need to replace that feeling of life with something else. And so you think about, for instance, a generation ago, um, there were prophecy conferences all over the place that were telling people, look, here's how to understand what's going on right now in the world. And a lot of these led by charismatic figures using all kinds of populist uh, methods. But it gave people the sense of we're in the moment of drama. We're at the we're at the very end, and I think that now that's been secularized, and is replaced by other things, and that's and that's I think how it manifests itself. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, another um, uh, symptom of uh, of uh, the pathologies that we are seeing right now is uh, kind of this. Um, uh, energy that we see around revivalism. And, and uh, you, you trace some of this back uh, to, again, the history and DNA of evangelicals. I'm going to read another short passage. The very populist and entrepreneurial energies that led American evangelical Christianity to grow into a world-influencing movement and into a powerful, powerful political influence seem to be uh, what was undoing us right down to decades of friendships. Um, th- this I, th- And I never really thought about it uh, until I read it in your book, that, that, that the growth of the e- post-war evangelical church has been, yes, a spiritual movement, but it has also been kind of an entrepreneurial movement as well. I mean, you know, you've got you've got these uh, entrepreneurial characters like Rick Warren, for example, and b- before him, Bill Bright, uh, who I, I think might even be sort of the the um, um, best example of kind of this entrepreneurial energy within evangelicalism. Billy Graham. Bill, yeah, well, Billy Graham, yeah, as well, as well of course. Um, so th- there's a, um, in in some ways, I guess what I'm, if there's a question in here somewhere, I think, and I think the question is, how much can we attribute the growth of evangelicalism to a real work of the Spirit, and how much of it to technique? Yeah, I, I don't think that's an either or. Uh, so I, I think about, I'm, I think about this all the time. It's just a, an article from who knows. 40 years ago or something I came across by Martin Marty explaining how the uh, early church grew. And he was he was giving all of these factors uh, involved in terms of um, um, people who were traders and with a D, not a, not a T, but who would uh, who would go back and forth in in trading. Even all of these things he said. Now, when I say all that, I am not saying that this is all a sociological explanation. Uh, the spirit blows where he wills, but the spirit is is often using. We can see the sorts of means that are being used, and if you look at the the very best of evangelicalism, I mean, one of the the reasons that we were able to do as evangelical Christians, going all the way back to really the the before even the founding of this country, is because there wasn't a red tape bureaucracy to be able to say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go and and preach the gospel here." You just 
go put up a tent and there you are. And so that kind of entrepreneurialism, I don't think is a bad thing. I think is a, is a really, really good thing, sure. but everything's got a shadow side and everything can be uh, utilized in different ways. So I think, I think that was dependent upon some really well-formed spirituality and character in figures such as Billy Graham and uh, and Rick Warren and and others, that when that's absent, the entrepreneurialism can turn into something different. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm going to pivot just a little bit in our conversation, Russell, and um, and maybe dig a little bit deeper into some of the ideas because you know I, th I think that a lot of these are symptoms, as you said, that you know some of them are also causes as well. That it's a circular thing, but. Um, uh, it, to, to at least the way I organized my thinking as I read the book, some of the root causes are um, not always as quite as obvious, and I think are more interesting. And I want to I want to read one more passage here um, uh, that I found particularly uh, insightful and in some ways particularly troubling. Um, it's um, from maybe a third of the way into the book. When a de-churched ex-evangelical in the early 1920s, by the way, I'm leaving out some, I'm, I'm not quoting exactly the way you wrote it, because you, qualif you qualify some of this, like what is de-churched, what is ex-evangelical, so on. So let me, let me just stipulate that for the record and move on. When a de-churched ex-evangelical in the early 1920s walked away from the church, it was likely due to the fact that she found the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection outdated or superstitious, or because he found moral libertinism to be more attractive than the outmoded strict moral code of the past. So that's the 1920s. Now let's move to the 2020s. We now see young evangelicals walk away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. More than that, they believe the church itself is a moral problem. Uh, first of all, I found that to be enormously helpful, just to really sort of summarize what I consider to be one of the big problems in one sentence. But can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I even noticed, I mean, the contrast there is between the 1920s and the 2020s. I've even noticed that just in the in the length of time of my ministry, in terms of when when somebody would come to me and say, I'm really grappling with the faith, it, it almost always fit into one of those two categories. It was either somebody who was saying, um, I just, I, you know, I went to college and I, I had my faith challenged by all these things. I don't know what to do with it. Or, you know, even more often that there was some moral uh, issue that that person was wanting to uh, pursue and was sure. and felt yeah. like he or she was being held back. And I, I almost never uh, encounter that now, um, nor do I encounter this sense of, you know, there was a time when people would use these categories of moral relativism to say, well, the church really doesn't know what's right or wrong. We really get, I never hear that now. Uh, instead, it's a fear that, and, and often it's a it's a fear that often these are people who don't want to lose the faith and who are saying, what if this is all just a means to an end? And when that's the case, then, I mean, the tragedy just, just uh, multiplies. And I've noticed that even with, uh, with atheists, when, um, when I'm on a college campus 
and I'm talking a lot of times I'm talking to atheist or agnostic uh, students, usually really curious, uh, polite. It's almost kind of zoo animalish. It's they they enjoy talking to somebody who believes what they think are crazy things, you know. But when there's an angry atheist or agnostic, it's almost always somebody who has um has a church background yeah. and is reacting to that church background. Yeah. I don't mean to go down a side trail here, but I'm a big fan of the movie Spotlight, as you might imagine, because of the kind of work that I do. Um, and, uh, you know, there's this very poignant scene in that movie where the Mark Ruffalo character, um, um, Mike Resendez, is the, he plays a reporter named Mike Resendez. He is um, he he's so he's really angry about what they're uncovering as a part of their coverage. And he said, you know, he stopped, he said, I stopped going to church years ago, but I always thought I would go back. And there was just such a deep grief that came through in that moment. You know, this, this wasn't a guy that was trying to tear down the church or tear down Christianity. He was a guy that wanted it to be true. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to say I find that scene very powerful and moving even than the describing of it. And, and um, I, you know, and it seems to be that's at least in part what you're saying here, right, is that, um, is that, they, that a lot of ex-evangelicals, they don't want to leave. They want it to be true, and they want this to be a home, the evangelical movement, evangelical church, whatever, to be a home for them. And they just find that, that their own moral scruples won't allow it. Yes, and that's you know I, I I kind of talk in two different ways if I'm talking to us within the church what we should do and if I'm talking to somebody in that situation um, and I'll often have people who will come up and say I'm in anguish I don't want to leave and usually what I do is to talk to that person about Jesus and the fact that Jesus did not give us an idealized picture of the church at all. As a matter of fact, he he kind of laid out uh, what would happen um, and, and happen often in, in different periods of time. And so, you know, I think about what Jesus says when he talks about fall of Jerusalem and other things. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you will not be alarmed. Um, and, and by alarmed here, I think it means, well, Jesus didn't see this coming. And um, I have to remind myself that that's that that's not the case. Yeah, right. Jesus, God, God never didn't see anything coming, right? <laughs> right. Yes. It's like um, I know you know Tim Alberta and his book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. And he he in that book and in interviews. In fact, I interviewed him last week. He he said that. Um, you know, his he would quote his father often that God is not biting his fingernails over this. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, I thought that I thought that was a great quote. Um, I I want to um, I'm skipping around just a little bit here on your Russell, just in the you know, um, in the interest of, of time to try to get through here. But I, I wanted to um, mention or or to ask you to say a few words about the evangelical church, kind of writ large. You 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 say early in and in the book that. Um, there is no way to reform the evangelical church because there is no such thing as the evangelical church. Uh, then you go on to make a fairly spirited defense of the evangelical church. Um, evangelicalism, they would argue, you say later, a couple of pages later, they would be critics of the church, is not a theological identity but a cultural 
one, and then you acknowledge to some extent that critique is true. And I, I guess my, my point, I'm, as someone who wrote a book called A Lover's Quarrel with the Evangelical Church, and I'm actually revising that book right now, I am reluctant to give up on the word evangelical and the notion of an evangelical church. I realize that it's difficult that the evangelical church, they're, they're, because of the, the polity of most evangelical churches and the history, culture, legacy, DNA, um, it's difficult to identify, you know, what it, what is evangelical belief. I mean, Carl Barth has tried to do it. Bebbington has tried to do it. The National Association of Evangelicals has a, a, a statement of faith. But all that said, I acknowledge that it is difficult, and yet I am reluctant to give up on it. It sounds like you are too. Yeah, and, and my problem with uh, evangelical church is not the evangelical part. It's that uh, unlike, say, the Roman Catholic Church, when we're talking about spotlight issue, is there's an in, there's a, a visible institution um, that could be theoretically uh, reformed. When we're talking about evangelicalism, though, we're talking about a much looser uh, sort of uh, network of people, which is one of the things that makes it uh, so difficult to reform institutionally, because the the institution as one palpable thing is is not there. Yeah, it becomes sort of a game of whack-a-mole, right? You re- you reform this this small institution, but then there, you know, what are there are others. So Yeah, and I'm not ready to give up on the word evangelical and I doubt I ever will because you know, and I'll often have people who will say, well let's not use that word. And I'll say, well then what do we use? And sometimes a person will say Christian and then I'll say, okay, well then that that implies that there are the only Christians are Christians like us. And what I'm, what I think is happening is that evangelical Christianity is that wing of the church that really emphasizes new birth. And, um, you know, and, and it's, again, it's, it's not a, um, it's not an easy categorization. You know, we're going to have differences as to where exactly that line falls, but that's, uh, that's, I think, an important word. And I just haven't found an alternative to it. Yeah. And I understand why people don't want to. I mean, the, the think about the way the word fundamentalist has changed. Um, yeah, I get that, but I just I don't know what to replace it with. No, I completely agree. I I, I don't. Um, uh, I, you know, words matter, and but but I but I think rather than give up on words like love or liberty, which are biblical words, justice, which are biblical words, I, I think rather than give up on them and say, well, th- those words are unintelligible to the culture. I think that leaders in the church have a responsibility to make them intelligible again to, re- to recover their meaning. Would be my position on that. Um, Okay, um, let I want to pivot to some solutions, but real quickly though, I want to ask you two more quick, maybe lightning round questions. Uh, there's a there's a kind of a um, a key moment in your book um, near the it's kind of near the beginning um, where you say you were outraged by two words that shouldn't have caused you outrage. The words were Jesus saves, but in the context. Uh, in which you encountered those words, and at least in your anecdote, it's easy to see why they caused outrage. Can you say more about that? Yeah, this was a, a sign at the January 6th uh, insurrection um, that said Jesus saves. And and the reason that was so outrageous is because the activity itself was outrageous. But then you add to it this sense of projecting out to the outside world, this is who Jesus is. Um, I think that is the 
danger of what uh, the third commandment is warning us uh, against, uh, but also what um, what the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, for instance, when he says, because of you, the pagans blaspheme. Um, and, and what he's saying is, uh, when you give an impression of Christianity or the gospel, that's something very different. You're you're representing it's it's Tash putting on Aslan's clothes, and there, there's something really really dangerous about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to in in my view think of a of a more perfect example of using the Lord's name in vain than than uh, using it in that environment. Um, and in that same sort of part of the book, you also quote Kierkegaard that says the most dangerous illusion of all is a paganism that thinks it is Christian. You're heavily suggesting, at least in that passage, uh, that um, that a lot of what we now identify as evangelicalism has become, in fact, kind of a neo-paganism. Is that fair? Is that a fair character? Yes, that's, that's, that's a fair. And, and the reason why I say that's more dangerous than paganism is because uh, one of the things that paganism can at least understand is the strangeness of the gospel and of Christianity. But when there's a kind of false familiarity with Christianity, oh, yeah, 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 we're, we're all in that, uh, in that category, um, there's an inability to even hear um, the message of the gospel. And that's, that's what's so dangerous. That's what's dangerous in a lot of the old uh, European state churches, and it's what is dangerous right now. One more question before we move to the solutions here. Um, you quote Amanda Ripley, um, and you, in particular, you use an expression that I think she coined called conflict entrepreneur. Would you say, would you define uh, for our listeners what a conflict entrepreneur is and why you think that idea is relevant in this conversation? Well, Amanda Ripley deals in what she calls high conflict, which is not just argument. It's when argument has moved to this sort of terminal phase. And in a list of things that she says, one must do to get out of that. Uh, one of them is to identify the conflict entrepreneurs. And what what she means by that is the people for whom the conflict itself uh, is the goal. And so, I mean, you can often see this in congregations where pastors have to sort of differentiate where do we have an actual fight because we disagree on what to do with missions money or whatever. And when do we have a situation where the fight is itself the goal? And, you know, often you'll see the same sorts of <laughs> tactics show up uh, all the time where, uh, you know, a conflict entrepreneur can say something like, you know, I really like Pastor John, but I know a lot of people don't. And it has the effect of, uh, I, I just saw, online the other day, someone saying that as a sort of a kind of a sick party trick, what they do is to walk up to people and say, I just want you to know that personally, I have no problem with your being here. Uh, and what does that do? That that creates this reality of, oh, wait, well, everybody else uh, thinks this. And so that is a really, really easy um an easy way to end up in high conflict and not to be able to get out because often you have your sort of, for lack of a better word, your normies in an institution or in a church who assume that everybody else is kind of in the same place they are, which is we, we actually, we want to get along, 
and I'm willing to live with a bunch of stuff that I don't necessarily like, and they will too. And that's just not the case when it comes to the conflict Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. Uh, well, in the 90 seconds that we have left, we are going to pivot, <laughs> pivot to the solution. And um, let it let, again, let me just stipulate for the record, we can't cover the entire book, but you do devote some energy um, to um, some some specific concrete advice for Christians who, you know, want to, um, you know, want to recover uh, the, uh, from the uh, current state of affairs. I'm going to quickly just list uh, the, the advice that you give and ask you to say a few words about the the, the last one. You say that um, in, in order to survive in a post-truth culture, we need to maintain attention, to pay attention, to tell the truth. Um, tell the truth in a post-truth world would be, I guess, a revolutionary act in some ways. Avoid foolish controversies, or as my son is fond of saying, if you play stupid games, you're going to win stupid prizes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so don't do that. Um, don't self-censor. In other words, speak up. Uh, question authority. And the last one is the one I want you to say a little bit more about, uh, Russell Moore, because um, you, you use language that is uh, a, a little bit um, oblique um, or or comes in at an angle that I thought was helpful and interesting, but I want you to say more about it. And that was inhabit the Bible, not read the Bible, not study the Bible, you know, uh, not memorize the Bible. I'm, I'm sure that you wouldn't be opposed to any of those things, but inhabit the Bible. What do you mean by that? I mean, um, there's a tendency, I think, sometimes to think I have the Bible to mine when I need it. Uh, So if for some people that is, well, the Bible actually is to be translated into a collection of theological syllogisms. And other people think, well, the Bible is, is where I need to go to answer specific problems that I'm having practically. And in reality, what I think God does is to, through our familiarity with the Bible, including passages we don't need yet, or we don't think we need yet, this is how God prepares us for what is uh, for what is to come. So sometimes I'll find, and I, I found this a lot um, teaching preaching is that there would be a lot of uh, a lot of students who were just starting out who would want to translate any passage first into a Pauline epistle, a parable or a psalm or proverb or something else, and then be able to preach it. Uh, when there's a reason why we have um, all of these different genres in Scripture. And I think that is what, I mean, I think of the temptations of Jesus, and we we. Uh, rightly uh, talk often about how Jesus responded to the devil with scripture. What I think we sometimes miss is the way Jesus is doing that. He's he's quoting one passage that is linking to an entire situation. And uh, you, you shall not live by bread alone. It's the situation of Israel in the wilderness. And God says, I made you to hunger so that you would know this. And I fed you so that you would know this. And Jesus says, I, I recognize the situation that I'm in. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's why often I'll when when I'm talking to people about growing in Christ, a lot of times people will say, you know, I just I get bogged down in Leviticus or I, I don't uh, I get confused when I'm in Second Kings. And I'll say, 
keep it keep there because it may be that there's something there that doesn't uh, address you right now, but will. And that's one of the things. I mean, when I think about my home church, um, I was telling somebody the other day, the older I get, the more I realize how much my parents did right. Uh, and I told my mother that the other day, and she said, well, we, you know, it wasn't like we were planning out <laughs> parenting strategy. We just did what we knew and what my home church did right. And um, my home church, I think, didn't know really how to do children's ministry. So they did what they knew, which was to teach us the Bible. And so we all sort of uh, live in the the rhythms of the King James Bible um, in a way that that was transformative for me. And I think sometimes, sometimes it's, it's hard to recognize that. And it's also, you know, when I'm on college campuses now, the, the questions that they ask are almost always, how do I pray? How do I read the Bible uh, with an attention span that has changed? Mm -hmm. And I'm struck by the sincerity of that. I mean, th those are the kinds of questions that I think 10 years ago, college students would have had, but they would have felt corny asking out loud. And now you have the sincerity of saying, how do I actually, how do I actually approach the Bible? I think that's a good development. Yeah. So final question, it sounds to me, based at least in part on what you've just said and in part on having read your book, that um, you're you're not in despair, that you have hope. And um, so, first of all, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, it's, uh, it's what uh, I, I think all the time about what I think it was Edward Abbey said, I'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist. And by short-term, I mean the next 5,000 years. Uh, not quite that. But yeah, I'm a I'm a long term optimist in a lot of ways, a relatively short term optimist too. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think I think like anything else, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character leads to hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I mean, it's Romans five. I, I think that's where we are. Yeah. And final question, Russell Moore. Anything that I'm not smart enough to ask? Any kind of final idea that you want to make sure that. Uh... Our listeners here. I think that's the final I idea. Is that is that, um, you know, I was at uh, Caesarea Philippi one time taking a group of students, and there was a some sort of a British neo pagan group that was there um, because this, of course, had been a, a hub of pan worship. And you know, you think about Jesus knew that it comes into a place that was a, a center of pagan. Uh, libertinism and named after the, the the power structures and said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a certain kind of tranquility that and, and confidence there that it's easy for us to forget and we need to remember it. Amen to that. Well, Russell Moore, thank you so much for the book. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a blessing and uh, yeah, prosper. Thank you. Thanks for being with me today on this episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. We've been talking to Dr. Russell Moore. His new book is Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. 
Once again, let me say Merry Christmas to you, and I hope you'll use the Ministry Watch database to help you make decisions for year-end giving. You can find the database just by going to the Ministry Watch website, that's ministrywatch.com, and then hitting the um, uh, button, red button at the top of the page that says Ministry Watch 1000 Database. We've got financials for the thousand largest Christian ministries in the country, and many of you have told us that this has been an important resource for you as uh, you have uh, uh, progressed on your journey of generosity uh, towards being a wise and faithful steward of the resources that God has entrusted to you. So we hope you'll use that. And whether you give to Ministry Watch or not, we hope you will give generously and faithfully during this year-end season. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database technical, editorial, and other support from Casey Suddeth, Christina Darnell, Kim Roberts, uh, and Stephen DeBerry. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.